open our Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalms are easy to find. If you open up in the middle, chances are very good you're going to land in the Psalms. Which is kind of cool. It, it shows us that we have made it roughly halfway through our study through the Bible. It's only taken us six and a half years to get to this point. <laughs> through the Bible in a decade. That's the goal. <laughs> Psalm 32, verse 1. Psalm of David, a mascal. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which has no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check, otherwise they will not come near to you. How many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord... Loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Father, would you bless the study of your word this morning? And God, I ask for insight. I pray this this word, insight, Lord. Help us to see and understand, not to be deluded or confused, not to be caught in vague spiritual things, but in in just absolute recognizable truth. I pray, Father, you give us, Lord, the wherewithal to, to walk through all of this and to retain and understand this. Insight, Father, by your Spirit who teaches us. In Jesus' name, Amen. God hates sin. Let's be clear about that. Unequivocally, irrevocably, God hates sin. Absolutely. Now that's a message that gets out. You know, Christian or not, in the church, in the world, wherever you may be, the idea of God hating sin, well, that's not a new concept to most people. The reason God hates sin so much, however, may be a new concept to some. Partially it's because He is righteous. But it's also because He loves you so much. I absolutely believe this. I have come to base my entire faith on it. God hates sin because He loves you so much. There's a big picture concept we need to get. There is a big picture, a story. God has been writing a story with a clear and definitive beginning and conclusion. I know there are some people who subscribe to the idea that life is filled with a random series of events haphazardly occurring from time to time. And that God Himself, even if you believe in God, is reactionary rather than an originator of things. And I know that in the world, living for this life alone is often considered the best way forward. The Bible speaks otherwise. One of the very clear messages of the Word of God is that it is not about now. It's about later. 
It is about days to come. It is truly about things of eternal significance, not just today, not just tomorrow, not just getting by. One place we have missed it in the church is when we preach sermons over and over and over again about how to have a happy life. I'm not going to tell you how to do that. Because the point is not happiness now, although there is more joy with the Father than without. It's still not about happiness now. It is about being with Him then. Let me explain a little bit more. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9 tells us Jesus became all those who obey Him. He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Now, I don't know how many of you here this morning are believers, Christians, you understand these things or you've been studying the Bible for a while, or maybe you're fresh and new to this. Maybe you're just approaching this. Maybe someone dragged you along. It's a holiday. We're going to go to church and then we'll go do the fireworks thing. (laughs) Wherever you're at this morning, let's just talk words of truth. The Bible teaches that Jesus became to all who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. That word source is interesting to me. It's the only time the word is used in the entire Bible. And it literally means the author. Hebrews 5.9, in the King James translation, which translates it actually a little bit better, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Which is interesting because history is His story. It is a story. A story of truth. It's not, it's not fiction. It's a non-fiction story. But from beginning to end, God has been telling a story to people. He's been explaining Himself in a way that, that is greater than can be explained in a moment, in a flash, in a thought. He has taken all history to explain something absolutely astounding to us. He's the great author. He has all authority. And there is a final chapter, a summing up of all things at the end, a place where we are all headed. Whether you accept Christ as Lord and and believe in God or not, we are all headed to the same exact location. Where is that? The summing up of all things, Paul says, in Jesus. We are all headed to Jesus. That is where everybody will ultimately end up. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Christ. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, Paul then says, it's the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. We're all headed to Jesus. We're all going there. We are all going to stand before Him. The summing up of all things in Christ. But the Lord, the author of eternal salvation, introduced something into His story. Something that no human author has ever been able to do. There have been a couple movies that have kind of played with the idea. And that is the Lord, in writing in His characters, gave them something no human author could give them. Freedom. Freedom. These characters, and we are characters, in the story, have freedom. To choose where they're going to go to design the path of their life. To follow me or to reject me. They have that freedom. But, along with that freedom, we need to understand there is always, there is still a final chapter, a place where we land. The summation of all things. We are going to come back to that place. What does the author do when he writes a story and gives his characters freedom... And they begin to veer off in all kinds of wild and bizarre directions. How does 
he straighten the story out, he enters the story himself. Ultimately, in the person of Jesus Christ. But even prior to that, God insinuated himself into the story throughout time. At first it was by sending prophets, by speaking through certain men. Through their hearts, they would then take messages to people to try and get the word out to explain this unfolding story before mankind. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. And that's how the Lord intends to draw back these characters in the story who are veering off of the subject line, getting out of control. He draws us back to the intended conclusion. There's a big picture. A story that's being written across all time. And David veered off it dramatically. Talk about spilling ink all over the page. David messed up big time. King David... A man of God, a prophet of God, anointed by God, loved by God, who the Bible calls a man after God's own heart, sinned big time, dramatically. In his most personal psalm, which is Psalm 51, we hear David's cry of repentance. We hear, talk about a sinner's prayer, that's it. Psalm 51, where David says, What have I done, Lord? He's he's passionate. He's crying out. He's asking for forgiveness. After an adulterous affair with a woman named Bathsheba, you know the story. And then to hide the affair, sending her husband Uriah to the front line of battle and having the army withdraw, so Uriah is murdered. And David called for that, and then he spends an entire year suppressing the truth in this conspiracy, in this cover-up, adultery, deception, lying, murder, all of it in this one instance of David's life. This guy knew what it meant to sin, and sin big. He veers way off the course. Psalm 51, verse 4, David writes, Against you, you only I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, And blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Does that mean that David was born out of wedlock? No. What David's saying is, my parents were sinners. And my grandparents were sinners before them. And their parents before them. All the way back to Adam. Everybody has been caught up in this thing called sin. And here I am, just like my forefathers before me. I'm a sinner. And he's crying out, forgive me, Lord. Sin is my problem. It's the ruin of what would otherwise be a beautiful story. And yet it's not, because God has a way of saving the story. And David learns this firsthand. He understands what sin does. In the Psalms, David will use the word sin 30 times. He'll use the word transgression another 14 times, and he'll use the word iniquity 45 times, altogether for 89 references to wrongdoing in the book of praises, in the book of worship. David understood messing up. David was a sinner. Great man, great leader of Israel, loved God. God loved David, but he was a sinner, like you and like me. And sin would ruin the story if not for the author of eternal salvation. If not for the way Jesus went about changing the story for us. Well, sin's the focus this morning. Happy Fourth. You see, Psalm 32 is considered one of the penitential psalms and is a companion psalm to Psalm 51. But there's a difference here. Psalm 51 is intimate. Psalm 32 is instructive. 
Where Psalm 51 is David's confession, Psalm 32 is more like David's his coaching. Psalm 51, David repents. Psalm 32, David repeats the joyful way to restoration. Note the heading. A Psalm of David, a mascal. The word mascal in the Hebrew is a very specific word, and it's used uniquely, and I'm going to come back to that, but it literally means to give instruction, understanding, or insight. It's a teaching word. So before we even read the first sentence of the psalm, we understand that David wrote it as a teaching tool. It's as though David draws back now. This is not the moment that he's in repentance, that he's in sorrow, that he's heartbroken over what he's done, realizing it, that he's calling out to God, save me, forgive me. No, this is later. He's looking back at the sin. And he's recognizing what he did. He's recognizing what God did in response. And he's telling anyone who would listen, look, I would like to instruct you so that you don't go that same path. I want you to understand some things I didn't get, but that I learned through this awful, horrible process. Now we're going to look at the, at the psalm in four sections. Each one is followed by the word Selah, which means pause. And it's as though David's writing, and he writes four verses and says Selah, and they say, wait a minute, now stop, think about what we just read. He writes another verse, and he says Selah, pause, think about what was just said, and he'll do that through the whole psalm. So let's follow through with David. Verse 1 again. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man who, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, this is important to understand. David begins by expressing the fallenness of our condition. And if you're a note taker, four things, that's the first one. The fallenness of our condition. David presupposes what the Bible presupposes, that we're going to sin. We're going to sin because we have this sin nature. He uses three words for it, and the words are interesting to me. Sin, transgression, iniquity. You've probably heard all three of those words, and they're not just used interchangeably. They're three separate, unique, and distinct words in the Bible. The sin in the Hebrew is the word kata'ah. And kata'ah literally means a realized wrongdoing. Oops, I know what I did. Did it again. It's, it's that sin that you commit. You know you did wrong. You didn't really want to, but you did anyway. Kata'ah. And by the way, that word is also the exact same word that's used for a sin offering, which I'll explain more about in a minute. The second word, transgression, is the Hebrew pasha. Pasha is a rebellious wrongdoing. That's, I know this is wrong, but I'm doing it anyway because I want to. And I really don't care what the outcome is. And I'm going to blow off the circumstances. I'm in rebellion, and I know it, and I'm glad of it. Whatever. You know, it's just blowing off the Lord, and it's intentional sin. That's the word transgression, pasha. The third word is big, and that's iniquity. Iniquity in the Hebrew is avon. I don't know if there's a connection. Avon, in the Hebrew, literally means raw depravity. Raw depravity. That is the Hebrew word that indicates the sin nature. This is what we all deal with. This is why people choose, this is why there's pain in the world, it's why there's suffering, it's why there's heartache. It is not because the nature of man is inherently good. The nature of man is not inherently good. Well, how do you know that? Ever have a child? Oh, babies are so innocent. No, they're little sinners. They're little sin machines. They're selfish. 
They are self-focused. It is all about them, and they could give a rip about anybody else. We have a sin nature, an avon, raw depravity. With that understanding, verses 1 and 2 would read like this. How blessed is the man whose rebellious wrongdoing is forgiven. Whose realized wrongdoing is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not hold responsible his raw depravity. And it starts to get big. I start to understand something. Wow. Grace is huge. Grace is amazing. Grace is not just that instantaneous, oh, I, I got drunk. God forgive me. Oh, good. That's grace. That's not grace. That's, that's God just being nice. Grace is God looking at you, looking at me and saying, you are so depraved you don't even know it. But I want to save you anyway. I love you so much. I want to provide a way for you to get beyond this nature that you can't get beyond on your own. That's grace. David draws to Psalm uh, 32, or Paul, I'm sorry, Paul goes to Psalm 32 as a quote in Romans chapter 4 when he's talking about faith in God's grace. If you will just trust in the Lord or answer the phone, whatever it takes. (laughs) Romans chapter 4 and verse 6. Paul writes, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, and then he quotes, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. This is a great blessing. This is a wonderful truth that God forgives and wants to forgive and has a plan to forgive our, our sin. But David also says something else. And you don't have to believe in Jesus to believe this. David also says, your sin's going to wear you out. It will. Your sin is going to make your life harder. Your sin is going to mess things up. He goes on in verse 3 and 4. Listen to the description. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Young people especially, listen to me on this. Sin is not some vague spiritualized concept out there. It's not just somebody's idea. Sin is not the fun that we wish we could have but God doesn't want us to have. That's not sin. It's not adult-only behavior. You know, sin is not that which you can do when you're 21 because then you're an adult and can handle it. No. Gang, sin is, is directly connected to the mess of our lives and not just spiritually, but physically. It's what brings about guilt. It's what brings about even illness and frustration. And David describes it in a, a powerful way. My body wasting away sin results in actual physical deterioration of our bodies. Because you can't separate the spiritual and the physical. We are physical beings. We are spiritual beings. And what's going on in our hearts, in our lives spiritually, we cannot separate out from what's happening to us physically. Sin has a wasting, draining effect on our lives that we cannot separate. It's written into the storyline and it is true for everyone. Again, it doesn't matter where your faith is, what you believe. Sin messes you up. Sin deteriorates. The wages of sin, the Bible tells us, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Why does there have to be death in the world? Because we sin. And because naturally, physically, our bodies are now deteriorating because of the sin choices in our lives. 
The other half of that verse is great. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a huge deception going on in our world today. A huge deception. It's an an incredible lie from the pit. And that is this, that we can have a vicarious sin experience and it won't affect us. And it's not true. What do you mean vicarious? I mean experiencing something through someone or something else. Movies. YouTube. Internet. Gaming. I can play the game. I can murder someone in the game. It's not going to affect me. It's just a game. Lie. It's a lie. Oh, Rick, you're just one of those conservatives. No, it's just, I'm just telling you the truth. It does affect us. We can tell ourselves all day long the impact is not real, but it is slowly draining the life out of our lives. And we, boy, you know what? The church is just, we Christians have just lock, stock, and barrel accepted so much in the way of sin in the world. Trying to be tolerant, trying to be cool, trying to just be cultural and relevant. The movies we see, the entertainment we engage in, and we somehow have listened to the lie that I can do this, but it's not really me doing it. I can watch an affair or a sexual thing happening on TV. It's not me, it's them. I didn't do it. It's a vicarious thing. I'm watching it happen. It's not affecting me. It does affect us. Jesus said in Matthew 15:18, "The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart." And those things defile a man. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. That's why Jesus said, if you even look at a woman with adultery in your heart, you've committed adultery. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. You can argue with Jesus about this. You get angry at your brother. You are that close to committing murder. There are things we say that Jesus says you might as well kill him because your heart just did. And we go, no, 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 that's the physical thing. I didn't do that. I just thought it. I think I've shared it here before. Cheryl and I had uh, a couple we were friends with early on in our marriage. And, and this guy actually believed, and this is mature, so I'm glad the fifth and sixth graders left. The husband actually believed. He said to me one time, well, I can fantasize about any woman when I'm with my wife because I'm not actually with the other woman. Are you serious? Man, you're paving a road to an affair right there. Because what goes on in here, what goes on in here affects us in an incredible way. Why? Because it is always our nature to run after sin. It's our nature. If you have a sin nature and sin is available, guess where you're going to be drawn? You can fight it And we should fight it, but you are going to be drawn that direction because of the sin nature. And we've got to learn to be vigilant against sin. Or we're going to keep doing it. Satan has turned up the heat on this culture in a big way. He is attempting to drain our vitality away, just like, as David says, the fever heat of summer, verse 4. My vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. It was so funny. I read this verse and the phone rang. I picked it up and it's Hayden. He's in Colorado. He's visiting his friend Isaac there and he's there for a week or so. And I go, hey Hayden, how's it going? Dad, it's hot! (laughs) He's a wimpy Northwest boy. He doesn't get the Midwest. And I had forgotten, you know, we send him off to Colorado in July with no shorts. Or I guess he had shorts, but they didn't fit. They had to go buy shorts and Hayden's just sweating. It's hot here, Dad! (laughs) You ever been in the Midwest in the heat? In the summertime? 
Cheryl and I lived three years in Virginia. I hated summer. I mean, if you've experienced it, you know what I mean. The, the, the morning, it doesn't even matter, morning, night, whatever, it's always hot. And all you want to do is just sit around. You want some tea, dear? Yeah, but it, it's on the table and I can't reach it. My vitality is just draining away. It's a great picture. And I'll tell you something, David understood this. Have you ever been in Jerusalem in August? There's some heat for you. It's oppressive. You, you can hardly move, do anything. David understood the heat, and he uses it as a word picture for sin. He says, with the fever heat of summer, my vitality is drained away. Sin saps our strength. And believers in Jesus, Christians, listen. If you find yourself uninterested in the Word of God, if you find yourself listless with worship, man, how many more songs does the band can do? If you find yourself lethargic about holiness and righteousness, there's a good chance you are being sapped of your strength by sin. There's a good chance there's something going on there that's drawing the energy away from what Jesus invites us to, a passion for holiness. An excitement for goodness. Vitality in righteousness. So what's the answer to all this? Verse 5. David says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. How wonderful is confession. It just gets it all out there. And that's why I truly enjoy saying we are all sinners. As the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And then once that truth is out there, what do we have to hide? Go ahead and look at me and say, Pastor Rick, I think you're a hypocrite. Yes, I am. Thank you. I know. But, but I heard you say this thing. Yeah, yeah, I shouldn't have, but I, yeah, I did. Well, I saw you do. Yeah. Well, why? You're a pastor. I'm a sinner. And once the truth is out, once confession is out, man, there's so much freedom there. Once everybody knows, well, what are you going to hide? You know, watch the politicians on TV and how they deny things that we all know they did anyway. I'm not implying any particular person. But they try and say, no, I didn't do that. It's like, man, if you just would admit it, you'd have some freedom, bud. The forgiveness. Number two in your notes. The fallenness of man. Secondly, the forgiveness of my offering. And the word there in the Hebrew, the last line of verse 5, you forgave the guilt of my sin. Literally, you forgave the depravity of my sin offering. What does that mean? The depravity of my sin offering. David's not just talking about confessing each little sin, coming forward to the altar, telling the pastor or the priest or someone other other person, here's, here's what I did, can we get this off my shoulders? It's far bigger than that. Remember the word sin, kata'ah, is the word for sin offering. And the sin offering was a voluntary thing that the Israelites were invited to do. There were five offerings. Leviticus chapters 1 through 5 details the five offerings that God gave to Israel that they could give to Him. Five different kinds. And the fourth is called the sin offering. And it was specifically an offering for unintentional sins. Those things that you do and you go, why did I do that? Sin nature. Those things that occur in your life. Decisions you make and you look back and you think, I don't know. Sin nature. And God looks at Israel and says, I know you're going to do things you don't even mean to. So here's the deal. Here's an offering for those things you didn't even know you did, didn't intend to do, that depravity that is in you. And it all pointed to Jesus who is our sin offering. 
See, ultimately, those offerings weren't because God wanted blood. Those offerings were to paint a picture. It was part of the story that He was telling all the way down to when Jesus finally came and we could look at Jesus dying on the cross, the perfect man, His blood coming out of His body for us, and we could go, He's the sin offering. It's Him. That's what God was trying to tell us before. That's what He prepared for us to understand. He is my sin offering. By the way, in the sin offering, the priest had to take the blood of a bull and sprinkle it seven times onto the altar. How many wounds did Jesus have on the cross? He had one in each hand. One in each foot. He had His back, His brow, His side. Seven. Blood from seven places on Jesus. Our sin offering. And that's why when a person gives their life to Jesus, it must contain the acknowledgement that, man, I'm a sinner. I have a sin nature. I need you. I need Jesus. I want forgiveness. I want to walk free. People wonder, why do you Christians do this whole confession thing? Because it's freedom. Because in that, I, I lay before Jesus my need for Him. And John says in 1 John 2, 1, if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, you Bible students know, the word just means He ourselves is the erasure of our sins. He takes it away. David writes, You forgave the guilt of my sin. Man, he wrote something way before we really understood what that meant. A thousand years before Jesus, he's talking about this complete forgiveness that is possible only in Jesus. And I wonder if David, when he wrote this, was thinking about the words of Nathan. See, Nathan was the prophet God sent to David when he had the sin with Bathsheba, when he committed adultery and murder. And a year later, Nathan comes to David and begins to talk to him and reveal to David, God knows what you did. David thought he had suppressed the truth. He hadn't. Nathan brings us to the surface and David responds, 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says to David, almost before the words are out of David's mouth, Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin and you shall not die. What? When was the last time you went to somebody for forgiveness and they started forgiving you before you could even get the words out? I I know you did that. It's okay. It's all right. Let it go. I let it go a long time ago. Amazing, amazing grace. In fact, note this. What David says in verse 5, he says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. That's a future tense statement. And then he says, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's a past tense statement. What does that mean? It means forgiveness precedes confession. It means before you even open your mouth to confess, God has already forgiven you. What happened 2,000 years ago at the cross was Jesus saying, look, I love you this much. All you've got to do is accept that. It's done. You are forgiven. You stand forgiven if you will but accept it. And it strips away the whole thing about it being about our goodness. Well, once I'm good enough, then Jesus will offer me a little bit of grace. No! You will never be good enough. Forgiveness before confession. It's waiting for us. Verse 6, David goes on. He says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. He says, Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. 
Like Noah, David indicates that the person who, who has been forgiven will not be drowned by the waters of judgment. They won't get up to you. They won't crash over the sides of the boat. They cannot capsize those for whom God has taken away sin. And so David calls for, number three, he calls for the foresight of confession. The foresight of confession. What do you mean? Let me read this to you again. He says, Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. When is that? Before the floodwaters rise. Before the first drop of rain starts to fall. For 120 years, Noah preached righteousness before the flood came. That was the time when forgiveness could be found. If a single person outside of that little family of eight, if one person had come up to Noah and said, you know, I, I think I want to go with you guys, he would have been saved in a time when forgiveness was available, when it could be found. Gang, we are in that time right now. The Bible describes it as the age of God's grace. The last 2,000 years, from the moment Jesus died on the cross, grace All you have to do is call out the name of Jesus to be saved. For all eternity. This is the age of grace. These are the days in which He can be found. And and it's funny, I've heard people ask the question, well, if this whole idea of the rapture, this left behind stuff, if that's true, well, when you Christians get taken away, I'll see it, I'll know what happened, and, and, and then I'll accept the Lord at that time. If you don't accept the Lord in days of grace, what makes you think you'll accept the Lord in days of judgment? And to make matters worse, the Bible speaks of a deluding influence that will come about in a time, the last seven years of the earth. I wish I had time to get all into it. I'm not going to take you there this morning. But in this time, the Bible refers to as the tribulation, the last seven years. It is a time of horrible, horrible judgment that will fall. And during that time... Well, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul speaks of those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what's false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, I'm not saying this to judge anyone or bring anybody down, but these are days of grace right now. Right now, God is just standing there, arms wide open, saying, come on, I've already forgiven you. Let's walk together. Let's let's share life together. Accept my love for you. And sinner's confession opens the door to the Savior's instruction. Watch this, verse 8. Now God's speaking. Through David, He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. It's a wonderful promise of the Lord. Come now, in the days which I may be found, in this age of grace... You don't have to know the way. You don't have to know the Bible inside and out. You don't have to have all the rules down pat. Just come on. I'll instruct you. I'll teach you. I'll be your guide. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 20. Your teacher will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Wherever you turn to the right or to the left. And in fact, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit of God is called our Counselor, right? Our helper. The paraclete, meaning to come alongside. And the Lord says, I'll do that. But we're stupid. <laughs> we are dumb like donkeys. Look at verse 9. 
Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. No, I'm not going to come to the Lord. I don't want that Christian stuff. Sometimes God has to beat us over the head to get our attention. Number four in your notes is the foolishness of the stubborn. And I, no offense to anyone intended, because I lived in this place, it's the foolishness of the stubborn. It is just plain stupid to reject the offer of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord against sin. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 3 says, A whip is for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. <laughs> stupid, stupid, stupid. You know, it's, come on. I, I love the story. J. Vernon McGee tells about a man in Texas who visited his friend, and his friend had a little donkey. And the two guys were going to go visit some mutual friends. And so they hook up the donkey to this little wagon. And before they even get on the wagon, the guy grabs a two-by-four, walks over to the donkey, and just goes, bam, right over the head. Whacks him on the head. And his friend says, what are you doing, man? The guy said, well, I do that to get his attention. Before we even head out. And I laughed about that. I thought, man, that is so mean. Because the reality is God's instruction sometimes involves a little whacking over the head. Sometimes the headaches of life are what I need to go, what am I doing? What am I thinking? Why did I do this? And why do I keep doing it? Bam! Oh, I I shouldn't have... Oh, why is it... And the Lord allows these things. That he might get our attention. I've said this before. I hope you're getting used to this comment. God is more interested in your eternal condition than he is your temporary comfort. He wants you forever. Not just religious for now. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. We're all tempted. We all face it. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Sometimes the way of escape is a whack on the head. Don't go that way. Okay, okay, I'm going this way now. I just need direction. And He'll do what it takes, because He loves me so much. My dad spanked me as a kid. Oh, you're one of those. You advocate spankings. Yeah, I do. (laughs) Because they work. I mean, there's a certain age. You know, Corey's 20. I think it's probably about time to stop spanking him. (laughs) It's correction. It's course correction. And that's what the Father does. Because we are foolishly stubborn, all of us. It is part of how we are. Again, no offense, I'm talking about myself. Don't be foolish. Don't reject the instruction of the Lord. If I seek Him, He promises to show me the way. Now the psalm ends on a great note. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Yeah, it's true. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. David describes what he has now learned personally. Remember, he sinned with Bathsheba. He thought that pleasure was worth having. And after the fact, she gets pregnant. Oh no, get her husband home. And her husband comes home. And you may know the story. He doesn't go in to sleep with his wife so David can blame him. He won't. So finally David sends him back and he goes, we've got to deal with this. Kill him. Because he's going to find out. She, she was pregnant. He was off at battle. That couldn't have happened. You know, so he sends him back, has him murdered. And then covers it up for a year. 
And the year is horrible for Dave. Things go from bad to worse. It's just life. Every morning he gets up and he knows what he did. And this man who loves God so much finds no vitality in his relationship. And then Nathan comes. And David pours out his heart. And David's forgiven. And now David looks back and he says, I thought that pleasure was worth it. It wasn't. In fact, what I thought looked good, what I thought looked joyful and exciting was painful and awful. And you know what I've discovered in my life? David would say this, and it's number five, and that is the fullness of joy in righteousness. Now listen, because this is hard to accept sometimes. It's actually good to be good. It is healthy to be holy. There is joy in righteousness. I know you haven't seen it sometimes in church people. And I joke about this. The church, I'm there to worship God and I'm you know, saved and it's good. No, that's not it. There is joy in righteousness, but Satan has played a number on mankind. The devil has gotten us somehow to believe that righteousness is a drag. Church going, why would I waste my time with that? It's, it's a bummer. It's something for uptight people or those who need a crutch. No. It is joy. It's gladness. There is no better way to live than in righteousness. Man, when I'm doing the right thing, I'm a happy guy. When I'm stupid, when I'm harsh, when I'm sinning, I'm guilty, I'm frustrated, sick. Righteousness. There's joy there. Daniel said in Daniel 12.3, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever because righteousness is a good thing. Why would Satan tell you otherwise? Because he doesn't want you to have that. Because he wants to block the way to a good life, a joyful life, a life of gladness. Now we can end right there. God good, sin bad. But there's something you've got to see. And this big picture unfolding as God is authoring this story down through history. This instructive story that even for this morning, we might hear it and say, Oh, now I'm starting to understand. This big picture, non-fiction account for all mankind. Listen, the primary character, listen, the primary created character is Israel. It's Israel. Winston Churchill said some people like the Jews and some do not. But no thoughtful man can deny the fact that they are beyond any question the most formidable and the most remarkable race which has appeared in the world. And yet, and let's just be honest and truthful here, one of the primary antagonists in the story of this created people, a source of world anti-Semitism, has been the church. The people who should know the story. Well, a little harsh, Pastor Rick. It's the 4th of July, lighten up. Let me tell you something here. I want to share quickly from the Bridges for Peace teaching letter, A History of Hurt, June 2010, Follow this through. A few quotes of great church leaders. And I want to tell you ahead of time, some of these church leaders have had a dramatic impact on my life in a great way. Men I respect, 
leaders and teachers and writers of, of church history who have done great things for the Lord. But listen to some of these words. In the second century, a man by the name of Ignatius said, Anyone celebrating Passover is a partaker with those who killed Christ and his apostles. Justin Martyr. God's covenant with the Jews is no longer valid. The church has replaced the Jews. Irenaeus, one of my favorites, said, Jews are disinherited from the grace of God. Clement of Alexandria said, God has given the Gentiles Greek philosophy, not the Hebrew Scriptures, to guide them. Which means the last six years that we've spent in the Hebrew Scriptures of the bridge is a big waste of time. In the third century, Origen came along. And he said, the allegorical interpretation of the Hebrew Scriptures is sufficient. In other words, there's nothing tangible, actual, literal in the Hebrew Scriptures. Tertullian said, all Jews are guilty of Christ's death. Eusebius, who wrote the book, The History of the Church, one of the most famous books in church history, he said, the church now claims the Old Testament promises. The curses are left for the Jews. Along comes Jerome in the 4th century, and he said, Jews are serpents bearing the image of Judas. St. Augustine said, Jews survive as a witness people. Their oppression confirming the validity of Christianity and giving the Christians the right to humble them. Augustine said that. John Chrysostom said, God has always hated the Jews, and it is a Christian duty to hate them too. Wrong, sir. Wrong. Jump ahead to the Reformation, 14th, 15th century. Again, I'm sorry, I didn't say these things. Martin Luther. Martin Luther, early in his writings, acknowledged that Jesus was born a Jew and that the first century church were Jews early on. But later in life, he wrote a book entitled On the Jews and Their Lives, and Luther advocated the burning of synagogues, the destruction of Jewish homes, the deprivation of Jews and their, of their prayer books in the Talmud, forbidding rabbis to teach, denying them travel, and requiring the Jewish people the most servile of labor. Martin Luther. Now I realize we're in Dutch Oak Harbor, so brace yourselves. John Calvin said, and I quote, Their rotten and unbending stiff-neckedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. And a man named Adolf Hitler is born. And the basis for Hitler's destruction of the Jewish people, his desire to wipe them out, was all of that history. Hitler, as a Catholic himself, was looking back across history and saying, yeah, the Jews are the problem. They killed Christ, we should kill the Jews. All Hitler did was follow through on what church leaders had said for 2,000 years. Boy, we missed something here, gang. Two-thirds of all Jews in Europe were wiped out in the Holocaust. One-third of every Jew alive on planet Earth was killed in that short amount of time. Hitler's final solution was built on centuries of Christian anti-Semitism. And is it any wonder that Jews mistrust the church today? Rick! Can we go now and shoot fireworks, please? (laughs) And what does this all have to do with Psalm 32? Everything. Because what's here in Psalm 32, and it blew my mind when I saw this, 
is the instruction of the story of God from beginning to end with the Jews as the primary character that we might learn. God says, I'm going to show you what it's like to love a people, to have them rebel against me, and yet to continue loving them and to work out a plan that by the time we get to the summation of all things in Christ, there will be a mass salvation of Jewish people who come to recognize their Messiah Jesus. It is astounding how this all plays out. The Psalm of David, a mascal. A masculine. We haven't seen that word before. We suddenly see it here, and it is a word that means insight, and it specifically means the insight of the Jewish people. How do you know that? Daniel 11.33. It tells us those who have insight, masculine, among the people, the Jewish people, will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Daniel 11.35 Some of those who have insight, masculine, will fall in order to refine and purge and make them pure until the end of time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Daniel 12.3 that we already read Those who have insight, masculine, will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel 12.10 Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have masculine insight will understand. And then Jesus comes along 500 years later, and He says, When you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, if you read that, and I'm, hang with me a second. If you read that in your Bibles, what you'll see is red letters for Jesus' writing until the last three words of that verse. Let the reader understand. And people assume, oh yeah, Matthew must have scribed, scribed that in just to say, understand what Jesus is talking about. I don't think Matthew wrote that. Well, I think he wrote it, but I think Jesus said it. Jesus Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, that is the temple, let the reader understand. And people standing around must have gone, let the reader understand? We're just listening here. What's the deal with that? Jesus was not speaking to them. He's speaking to a people later. A people yet to come. The abomination of desolation, what is He telling us to understand? Or what is He saying must be understood? Understand, first of all, that that word understand is the Hebrew equivalent is masculine. That's the Hebrew equivalent, same word. Well, understand what? That the abomination of desolation is something deeply rooted in Jewish past and future. The abomination of desolation, in the past, it was an idol. Around 171 AD, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, he comes in, Greek conqueror, comes in and conquers Israel, Jerusalem. 186,000 Jews are killed in one day by this guy. He goes into the temple and he spatters pig soup all over the walls of the holy place. And he sets up an idol where the Ark of the Covenant should have been. He messes with the temple. He defiles it. You, you may know something of the story because after the fact, a bunch of guys, band of guerrilla warfare Israelis <laughs> called the Maccabees came in and drove them out. And they went into the temple, cleaned it out, fixed it all up, prepared it, and they got ready and they lit the candle and then they realized they had no oil left. And it took eight days to consecrate the right oil. And they were going to run out. And they prayed and asked for a miracle and that oil lasted eight days. It's called Hanukkah. 
And that's what the Jews celebrate there. That was the first abomination of desolation. However, Jesus reaches back and He says, listen, when you see future tense, the abomination of desolation, then you know what's going on. The Bible tells us specifically, Daniel 9, 26 and 27, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Revelation chapter 13, that in a time yet coming, there will be a new temple and there will be an idol set up in the temple that the Jews will realize is the abomination of desolation that Jesus was talking about and it's all going to start clicking. They'll start to... This is the story. This is what He was doing. Jesus said it for them. Let me take you a step further. Revelation 13.18 says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding, mascal, calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. And people write all kinds of books about the 666 and what it means. Bottom line is, it never gets to seven. <laughs> Antichrist is just a man, a world leader, who stands up, and begins to lead the world, and people chase after him and go, oh yeah, he has the answers, he can do it, yes he can, until he sets up the abomination of desolation and calls on the world to worship him. We're not far from that, gang. All these verses tie into the future of Israel and God's plan for His people, and Psalm 32 is the great mascal. Oh, I understand, we can read it, and we did this morning. It is a great instruction for us against sin. Man, you choose sin, it's just going to mess you up. If you choose Jesus, it's life and joy and righteousness and goodness, and we get that. But listen, Psalm 32. In a day not too future, will stand as instruction and insight for God's people Israel. When they fully recognize that Jesus is in fact their Messiah. They'll see that, they'll know, and then they'll read. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And all these things, again, they're coming to the end of the book and they're finally recognizing what God has been writing across all time. And it's astounding. And Paul writes in Romans 11, he says, Just as you, Gentiles, were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of the Jewish disobedience, so also, now, these have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. It's going to flip back the other way. And the Jewish people will see the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace that you have in Christ Jesus. It's a marvelous body of work. An incredible story of amazing grace, forgiveness, and redemption. And God has written it across all history. I need to point out to you one final thing that Psalm 32, though it is a companion to Psalm 51, it is also the continuation of Psalm 31. It's as if David just kept writing directly on. What do you mean? Psalm 31, as we talked about Wednesday, is the cry of Christ from the cross. It is an emotional cry. Like Psalm 22 before, it's Psalm 31 is Jesus Speaking from the cross. Well, how do you know that? Verse 5, Psalm 31. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Those were the last words of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Verse 12. I am a, I'm forgotten as a dead man. Out of mind, I'm like a broken vessel. I've heard the slander of many. Terror is on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they schemed to take away my life. Exactly what happened to Jesus. 
Down in verse 22. I wish we could just go through the whole psalm. I won't. (laughs) Verse 22. As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from before your eyes. And Jesus was cut off in the crucifixion. But, verse 24, he says, Be strong. Let your heart take courage. All you who hope in the Lord, keep going. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. By who? By Jesus. By Jesus. And the point is this, the Lord has written and has been teaching this truth of forgiveness and salvation and and rescue deliverance from our sin in the classroom of history so that we might fully and finally come to see His glory and understand the fullness of joy in His righteousness.